0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the antiviral drug remdesivir and its role in the treatment of COVID-19. To examine this are IDSA members, Dr. Raj Gandhi with Massachusetts General Hospital and Dr. Adarsh Bimraj with the Cleveland Clinic. Thank you both so much for joining us. Remdesivir has recently been touted as the most promising antiviral drug currently in development for the treatment of COVID-19. What is the data Dr. Bimraj showing in terms of successful treatment rates?
1: Remdesivir, as you know, uh, as all know, is an antiviral drug uh, that has been around, have been uh, used in other, at least trials have been done for other viruses. Uh, Initially, when COVID-19 started, This drug was available only as compassionate use and extended access program. Uh, And some of the initial data without any comparisons were published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in early April. And uh, a couple of weeks after that, I think April 29th, the first randomized controlled trial done out of China by Wang et al. was published. In that study, remdesivir did not actually show any difference in clinical outcome. They did an intention to treat analysis and symptom resolution uh, and also it did not show any difference in viral shedding between both these arms. But the caveat with that study is as the epidemic was coming down in China, they weren't able to recruit enough number of patients. So the question that was lingering is, is it that the drug is not effective or is it purely because it was statistically it was underpowered? In fact, a couple of hours right after that study was published in the Lancet, uh, there was a press release uh, announcement by Dr. Fauci from the White House uh, saying that the ACT trial, uh, the ACT-1 trial, uh, which was a huge multi-center randomized control trial on Remdesivir, uh, was stopped because the DSMB thought there was a significant benefit in uh, time uh, to symptom resolution with remdesivir compared to uh, placebo. Uh, And uh, within two days of that, the FDA issued an EUA and the drug was available fairly soon. But the trouble most of us um, at the frontline physicians as well as hospitals were facing was, we had the drug available in limited supply, but we didn't really have the trial data published uh, so I think that was a difficult time making decisions as to who to use and how to use the medications. Then uh, a few weeks after that, on May 22nd, finally, the preliminary results, the 14 day results of the ACT-1 trial were published in uh, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, the amazing thing about the ACT trial was in a pandemic setting, they were able to pull off a trial like this. And there's some limitations to the trial, but it was a fabulously done trial, uh, even in these circumstances. The ACT trial was done uh, in people who were hospitalized with COVID uh, who were on uh, supplemental oxygen. That is how they defined a severe disease as. And patients who were either having a poor renal function or had elevated liver enzymes were excluded from this trial. So what were the results of the trial? Patients who received remdesivir had a more rapid recovery than those patients who received placebo. Uh, The remdesivir time to recovery was 11 days as compared to 15 days in patients who received the placebo, and this was a statistically significant result. Uh, In terms of mortality, there was no statistically significant difference, but there was a trend to a lower mortality in the remdesivir group, about 7% in the remdesivir group compared to about 12% in the placebo group. This is preliminary data which is only 14 days uh, into the trial and the final results at the 28 days are yet to be published and uh, who knows, maybe it might show a significant difference at that particular time. Uh, Only time will answer that question. If you look at a subgroup analysis, and we have to be cautious about interpreting subgroup analysis because the intent of the study uh, was not powered to mention that people on supplemental oxygen alone tended to do much better. And there was a significant difference between placebo and remdesivir. But patients who were sick on mechanical ventilation or on ECMOs, there was not much of a difference between these two groups. But this might be purely a statistical aberration because majority of the patients enrolled in the trial were those who are in supplemental oxygen, and maybe the study did not have enough patients in the mechanically ventilated and the ECMO groups to show the difference. Another thing would be I mean, people who are critically ill take longer to get better, and this is a 14 day preliminary analysis, and we still have to see the 28 day analysis. The ACT trial was a ray of sunshine, and at a time when we did not have uh, any treatments available. Again, it showed a glimmer of hope, even though it did not show mortality benefit, the fact that people could get out of the hospital within a couple of days is not only good for the patients, but also in terms of resource availability. Uh, Hospital beds are available who are sicker, and I think uh, it had huge implications. I think with that, I will lead this over to Raj, who's going to talk about the SIMPLE trial.
2: In the ACT trial, the duration of remdesivir given was 10 days. As he also alluded to, there are potentially limited supplies of this drug. So one of the critical questions that the SIMPLE trial looked at is whether a shorter course of therapy would be as good as 10 days. So what the SIMPLE trial did, which was a manufacturer-sponsored trial, is it looked at five days versus 10 days of remdesivir. In people with uh, severe COVID-19, what they found is that five days of remdesivir was as good as 10 days of remdesivir. And these are very helpful data because they support using five days of remdesivir for most people with severe COVID-19. One group that was not included in the simple trial, and and therefore there's still a knowledge gap, is those people who are mechanically ventilated. The critically ill patients were not in the simple trial. And so we don't really have a, a firm answer as to whether five days is as good as 10 days in that group. But as you also just heard, the the benefit of remdesivir in the mechanically ventilated group is still an area of of active investigation. It's just not known for certain of what the remdesivir does uh, in that group. So the simple trial we're was important in severely infected patients because it told us that most people with severe COVID-19 can be treated with five days. Data that will come out soon, uh, but for which we don't have a complete data set, is those people who have moderate disease. Uh, It is said that there's a benefit of remdesivir in the group that has moderate disease, that, that is people not on oxygen But the full data set is awaited, and and so something to stay tuned for.
0: Doctors, thank you so much for sharing the data with us. I'd also like to ask you to share with us your experiences in using this antiviral in your practices. Dr. Gandhi, if you'd like to continue. So as
2: Dr. Primera said, I think where the the evidence is the strongest for remdesivir is in people with severe disease who are on oxygen. I think in that setting, I'm very comfortable recommending it strongly for uh, patients um, who are who, who meet those indications. Um, what's more uncertain is in a mechanically ventilated patient, uh, there, is, as was said, um, the preliminary data didn't show a definitive benefit of remdesivir, but it's possible that with a more extended follow-up, we'll see an impact of the drug. So what I personally do, and what um, many of the my colleagues at my institution do, is if someone has been on mechanical ventilation for a short period of time, say one or two or three days, um, we generally do recommend giving remdesivir. We think that these antivirals probably work best early in the course of disease, and if someone is relatively early in their course of disease, uh, even if they're intubated, um, we think uh, it's worthwhile to give the drug, and that is also because we have adequate supplies of the drug, a topic that we'll come back to. And someone, though, who's been ventilated for, for you know many, many weeks, that person is in the inflammatory phase of the disease, and an antiviral is very unlikely to be beneficial, and there we don't give remdesivir if someone has been ventilated for a a prolonged period of time. We think that's the place to be looking at anti-inflammatories rather than antivirals.
1: Thanks, Raj. Uh, this is Sadash. I think I kind of agree with Raj. If we have enough drug, at least fortunately uh, in my practice, uh, where the epidemic is actually down, we have enough drug. I've used it both in mechanically ventilated patients as well as uh, in severe patients who are just in supplemental oxygen. For the people in supplemental oxygen, I think based on the simple trial, especially if the patient improves, we have used five days. But people on mechanical ventilation, especially if they're just a couple of days uh, um, since they've been intubated, we have used it but for 10 days. Uh, as Raj presented, uh, the simple trial excluded patients who are on mechanical ventilations. The only data on duration of treatment is baked on, based on the ACT trial. Now, maybe I'm an optimist, but I think... To say that it will not benefit the critically ill, I don't think we have enough data. Like one, uh, as I alluded to earlier, there are not enough patients in that particular arm in the ACT trial, and the follow-up has been not long enough. So if you have adequate drug, what I'd recommend is use it in the critically ill as well. But if you have to make uh, decisions when there's limited drug supply, I think it's okay to preferentially use it in patients with severe illness just in supplemental oxygen.
0: I appreciate your answers, doctors. Moving on now, Dr. Gandhi, can you explain exactly how the antiviral works to combat COVID-19?
2: Remdesivir is a drug that's been around for a while. It wasn't developed particularly for COVID-19. In fact, it was studied uh, in the past for treatment of uh, Ebola, a very uh, different uh, infectious disease, but also um, a a virus that uses an enzyme called RNA polymerase to to replicate. So in the Ebola trials, remdesivir did not look as good as the antibody-based trials. When SARS-CoV-2 infection came around, uh, it was picked up because it does work by blocking this enzyme called RNA polymerase. And by blocking that enzyme, it prevents the SARS-CoV-2 virus from making copies of itself. So essentially, it's working as an as a antiviral to, to block viral replication. Animal models of COVID-19 exist in, in rhesus macaques. And in a study that was just published uh, in Nature, from Desivir in the rhesus macaque model of COVID-19 was found to reduce the SARS-CoV-2 levels in the lungs of the animals and to improve those animals' clinical status. And so we think that remdesivir is working through a similar mechanism in people with COVID-19. The that, that data that was presented before from the ACT study, we think that it's working as an antiviral probably in the lungs to block viral replication. Now, most antivirals work best when you give them early in the disease course, as we alluded to before, I think, and I think many of us think that this is likely to be the case for remdesivir as well. And as I also mentioned, we will see data soon, maybe even later uh, in the next month or so, on the use of remdesivir in people with moderate COVID-19, but those data are not fully available yet. So essentially, it's working as an antiviral, blocking the viral polymerase.
0: Dr. Gandhi, I'd like to stick with you. The federal government plans to distribute nearly all of its remaining supply of remdesivir to states by the end of the month, while holding back less than 2% of the original donation in the event of possible hotspots. This, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. What happens when that supply is depleted?
2: At this time, in our hospital and at other hospitals in our area, in Massachusetts, we do have enough uh, supplies of remdesivir to treat our hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Those, those people who are on oxygen or who have just been intubated, we, we do have enough drug. But I I will also say that the ability to have those adequate supplies here in Massachusetts is because our numbers of patients with newly diagnosed severe COVID-19 have been falling, have been going down steadily. And so I am worried uh, that as case numbers increase and as more people are hospitalized, particularly in states which opened up too early, I am concerned that we will run out of remdesivir in those places. Now the manufacturer is ramping up production of remdesivir so that more drug will be available later this year. But until that drug is available, and even when it is available, everyone has got to do their part to reduce the numbers of new COVID-19 cases um, uh, through social distancing, through uh, wearing of masks, through contact tracing. We can't run out of the supply uh, because um, we just—that's not a place we can be in—and so. All those measures have to be re-intensified so that we don't run out of the the drug remdesivir, which which I do think has a benefit.
0: Excellent advice, Dr. Gandhi. Dr. Bimraj, turning to you now, the FDA warned of the lessened effectiveness of remdesivir when taken with hydroxychloroquine. Why then are the two still being used in tandem to treat severe cases of COVID-19?
1: to the best of my knowledge, that interaction is an in vitro interaction that was mentioned in the EUA, and I'm uh, not sure it's a clinical uh, effect. But even that, that is not the question. The question we should be asking yourself is: should we be using hydroxychloroquine? There have been multiple observational studies which showed that hydroxychloroquine usually is not beneficial. And there's some studies for chloroquine which actually might even show harm. But there have also been unpublished data by press release of huge trials. We're talking about the recovery trial from UK, or the Solidarity trial. And just last weekend, the ORCID trial got closed because there was no benefit in using hydroxychloroquine in patients with COVID-19. And the FDA also recently revoked the EU for hydroxychloroquine And most centers, at least my experience in my centers, and not using uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine. It's not the interaction. I don't think the data so far shows that hydroxychloroquine works and we should not be using it. The data shows that remdesivir might be beneficial and that's the drug we should be using.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bimraj. Dr. Gandhi, remdesivir's maker, Gilead, recently announced that children with moderate to severe COVID-19 will soon be entered into late-stage trials. Is this safe?
2: There has been a compassionate use program that has allowed children to enroll and receive remdesivir. That compassionate use program is what allowed us to treat some of the children in our uh, region with remdesivir. But in a compassionate pro- use program, you just don't collect all the information you, you need to answer the question about the levels of the drug. What are the, some of the safety considerations that you're, you're asking about? So for that reason, uh, the manufacturer did launch a trial. It's got the name of um, the CARAVAN trial. And the purpose of that trial is to evaluate the safety of the drug, to answer your question, the tolerability of the drug, the levels of the drug, what's called the pharmacokinetics of the drug, as well as the efficacy, how how well does it work in children all the way down from birth to age 18, so really starting at birth, going all the way up to age 18. That particular trial is going to have different cohorts based on the age and the weight of the child, and the target enrollment is going to go up to about 52 uh, children. It's an open-label study. And the main thing they're looking for, the main outcome is what are the adverse events? Is it safe? And what are the drug levels? Uh, The secondary intents, the other things they're gonna look at, the secondary outcomes are how well do the children respond and does the the drug drive down the virus? Is there a virologic response? So right now, even as we speak, you can get remdesivir for treating children through the uh, Food and Drug Administration Emergency Use Authorization for, for the drug that Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA, does include adults, as we've been talking about, but also includes children. But I do think this is a the new study that's being launched just, just last week. It's really critical to, to answer some of those questions about the levels, the safety, and some of those other things that we need to know.
0: A quick follow-up, Dr. Gandhi. What data have similar trials with adult patients presenting with COVID-19, some of which we discussed already, shown in the effectiveness of the drug within the pediatric population?
2: So that's where we just don't have the information we need. The, the ACT study um, really was focused on adults. And so uh, we just don't have that same level of data uh, that, that we discussed earlier in this podcast in terms of the effectiveness of the drug. We don't, we don't have that in children. I think it will be interesting to see if there's the compassionate use program that I alluded to before It will be good to see the data from that. It will not be as as comprehensive as the, the new trial that's starting, but it will still give us some valuable information.
0: Thank you for your insight, Dr. Gandhi. For our last question, I'd like to pose it to both doctors on the panel. How can local, state, and federal agencies ensure the equitable distribution of the drug, particularly in traditionally disparate populations? Dr. Bimraj.
1: Nadia, that is a great question. I hope we have enough drug to go around that we don't have to allocate it and we can use it in every patient who needs it. But the reality is uh, there is a shortage of the drug. uh, And uh, it's not just equitable distribution on a patient level, but at a state level, at a regional level, and a hospital level. At least... uh, uh, in the state of Ohio, the state has been very actively uh, engaging us, frontline providers in these decision-making, thankfully. And they've been looking at our ventilator use and the amount of COVID-19 and allocating it uh, to hospital systems. And within the hospital systems, too, I think if one hospital within our system needs more, I think we have been very open to redistributing the drug to wherever it is needed, Fortunately, in our system, we were able to give the drug to anybody who thought it was necessary. Um, But I've been talking with other people in different states and different hospitals, I've had different approaches. Some states, I think the state itself is looking at individual patients and criteria. And some institutions, um, especially looking at uh, racial and ethnic minorities and socioeconomically uh, uh, poor patients, they have factored into the decision-making who gets these medications, those factors as well. And many of the institutions, their are bioethicists who have been involved in these decision-making absolutely to make sure that uh, the people who are most affected uh, by this pandemic are cared for and they appropriately get these medications
2: this epidemic, pandemic has been, the brunt of its um, effects have been borne by racial and ethnic minorities, by the poor, and by Native Americans. And so we have to make sure that this drug gets to the people who have been disproportionately affected by uh, COVID-19. For example, safety net hospitals, uh, hospitals that serve the people who are disproportionately affected have to have adequate supplies. All hospitals care, care for people who are uh, disproportionately affected. So I come back to that first principle. we got to drive down the numbers. We know how to do that through social distancing, through masking, uh, through contact tracing. we got to drive down the numbers so that the supply does not become limiting and we need to have uh, ramped up production so that we're never in a position uh, where we can't give the drug to people who need it most.
0: At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any last words.
1: Nadia, again, for me, has started to be the medical drug. And I think it's a great drug, but we should also, as Raj pointed out, it is one arrow in a quiver. In addition to making sure that there's enough drug manufactured and it's equitably distributed, I think we should all do our part as well. And not just as clinicians, but also as patients, like social distancing, as he said, uh, and making sure that we wear masks. Unless we do it, uh, as a whole package. I don't think we can beat this epidemic.
2: Remdesivir uh, does have an important effect, but it's not a, a miracle drug. And it's the beginning of the process. It's the beginning of finding medicines that work, that have an effect on COVID-19. It's by no means the end. And in fact, I, I, I'd like to hearken the time we're into the early days of HIV. In the early days of HIV, we, we had no drugs that worked. In fact, a lot of things were being studied and they turned out not to, to be effective. And there was a lot of pressure to approve those drugs. And thankfully, clinical scientists, their, their patients, clinicians, um, stuck to the tried and true method of, of medical science, which is to do comparative trials. And, and that led to the drug AZT. But they didn't stop there. And, and really, the tipping point came with HIV when there were multiple drugs that worked together to block HIV replication. I view remdesivir very much in the same way. It's, it's, a, it's a foot in the door. It, it gets us um, going in the right direction, but it's not where we're going to stop. We need to combine it with other drugs, um, other interventions, uh, interventions focused on inflammation for example, uh, to get us to that tipping point so that COVID-19, just like with HIV, will be something that we can treat effectively and, and, and you know, make a difference. So uh, that's where I view remdesivir. It's, it's the beginning, but certainly not the end.
0: I'd like to thank Drs. Bimraj and Gandhi for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, Visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.